So Jesus spent his entire ministry amazing other people. If you look, he raised the dead, healed the blind, cast out demons, walked on water. He was transfigured into his glorious state on a mountaintop. The Gospels are full of amazing miracles that Jesus performed. However, today's account is a little bit different. Today, we're, we're going to see only the two times we see in Scripture that Jesus was amazed or that he marveled. Uh, the first time we see him amazed or marvel is in his own hometown in Mark 6.6. 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. So this the first, first amazement was actually a negative one. He was marveling that they could hear all of these accounts of what he had done. And he gets there, and they are completely unbelieving. His own hometown, that's why he says no prophet is without honor in his own hometown. Uh, so, but today's amazement is going to be the 180 of that. We're going to see a positive one. Uh, Jesus is going to marvel at the faith of a man, actually. Uh, Jesus will be amazed, and we, all, we oftentimes don't see Jesus' emotions mentioned in the Scriptures. We see him do a lot of different things. We see other people's emotions, but we rarely see Jesus' emotion, and we're going to see it today. Uh, and it's a wonderful glimpse into the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and we're going to get a beautiful light shown on his humanity. But one of the most interesting accounts that you're going to see is this man's faith that, that amazes Jesus is that of a Gentile a non-Jew, not even one of the children of Israel. So let's jump in and get into this scripture. It's going to be Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It'll be up here if you have your Bible with you. You can turn there with me. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come or came to Jesus, they, they or when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, "He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue." And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, "Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed." For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I love your word because it just preaches itself. I mean, just, just reading those 10 verses of Scripture, are, are, there's so much meat in there. I, I could probably talk for, for hours and hours. Um, however, I know our congregation is going to be happy to know I'm not going to do that. But, uh, but, but, but I just pray that you, that you help us to, to glean at least what, what you have for us in this to a certain extent. I know the beautiful thing about Scripture is we can read it, we can study it, and we can continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Your, your word is this deep well that we can never exhaust. It never runs dry. And I thank you so much that your Holy Spirit will help us to illuminate this scripture, help us to understand what you have for us. So may you speak clearly through me, and may your Holy Spirit be working in the lives of believers here to be able to understand this fully. Uh, and God, for those that may not have the Holy Spirit, those who may not be saved, may they hear your word and respond to it in repentance and faith. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you. Amen. 
So today we're going to see three ways that Jesus responds with grace. And the first one is Jesus responds with grace to the loving, to the loving. So I'm going to reread verse 1 here. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So after he'd finished all these sayings, we've been out of Luke for a couple of months now. We went through the book of Haggai and uh, had a couple of guest pastors after that. And so if, if you don't recall, we talked about the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, that It was the parallel version in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Jesus had taught a lot of, of wonderful things. He taught on the Beatitudes and woes, love your enemies, the proper ways of ju- judging and discerning, uh, and how to build your life on the solid foundation, right? The rock and the sand. So if you recall, when we finished uh, that, uh, he, he kind of finishes that sermon. And now we're going to walk right in to this scene. And he finishes with entering Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum became Jesus' major hub for his ministry. He spent a lot of his time there. Obviously, we saw his, old, his hometown of Nazareth rejected him. So this kind of becomes his new hometown, his new ministry hotspot. And this will continue to come up through the Gospel of Luke. We're going to see Capernaum mentioned time and time again. Uh, and if we, if we look at actually the town name actually means, means House of Nahum. We're not sure what Nahum that that references. Uh, but the Gospels refer to this town some 16 different times. It's really interesting, though. It actually falls off the pages of Scripture after the Gospels. You don't see it mentioned in Acts or anywhere else there. And if you look on this map, you see uh, Capernaum's right on the Sea of Galilee. You wonder why the Sea of Galilee comes up time and time again as well. It's because that's the right on the hot spot of Jesus' ministry throughout this. So now that we have our, our setting, we know kind of where we're at. We've refocused, gotten back into the book of Luke. Let's get into the meat of this account. So let's reread verse 2 here. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. So we're first introduced to a centurion. For those of you who might not be history buffs, a centurion was over how long is a century? A hundred years. So around a hundred men. So that helps, helps you kind of understand that. And then six centurions and their men would be formed into a tribune, and then the largest designation of the Roman army was called a legion, which was some 6,000 soldiers. Centurions were appointed after they'd proved themselves tried and tested. They were reliable. They were kind of the, the backbone of the Roman army. Now, they often functioned in functioned collection of taxes, keeping order, enforcing the law. Before getting into this particular centurion we're about to describe, You'll find it interesting if you do a study on the New Testament on centurions, every single centurion is positive. You know, we think about Rome, we see them looked at as really negative when we look uh, at the Jews and how they responded to Rome, how Rome overtaxed them, took advantage of them. But every single centurion mentioned in Scripture, it's actually, they're mentioned in a positive light. So we see Cornelius in Acts 10, 44 through 48, he's a devout believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, We see in the, um, and actually in, uh, Mar- I think it's Mark. Yeah, Mark fifteen nineteen. It's actually the centurion who is beside of Jesus as he dies that says, truly, this was the Son of God. He recognizes him as the Messiah, as the centurion, a Roman centurion. And then we see in the life of Paul, multiple centurions keep him alive. Uh, so Acts 22, a centurion pr- protects him from being flogged because he's a Roman citizen. Uh, the next chapter, Acts 23, a, a centurion relays a message from someone that pr- protects Paul's life, that people were lying in wait for his life. And then finally, in the, last, or the next to last chapter, Acts 27, and a centurion protects Paul yet again. It's amazing how God used these, these centurions to help advance the gospel. 
if we're looking back, uh, we, we, we see that Matthew adds a little bit more detail than Luke does about the centurion. Uh, we, we see here uh, that he was sick at the point of death in the book of Luke. Matthew 8, 6 actually says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Don't you find it interesting? Luke is the physician, but Matthew actually gives a, a stronger diagnosis here as far as what's going on. I thought that was kind of interesting, but I will say Luke does get to the point. Matthew doesn't say he's about to die. Luke says, hey, he's going down. He's, he's, about, to, he's about to die. So between both of them, you get a little bit of an idea of what's going on here. And we're told, and in, in back into looking at verse 2 again, that this, ser- this servant is not just any servant. He's highly valued by the centurion. Uh, and when we read it today, we're like, oh, that's nice. He's highly valued. But you have to understand, in Roman times, servants were really slaves. They were bought and sold as property. Uh, they weren't really part of the family. They, they, they were usually uh, treated as an animal, per se. But yet this centurion highly values the servant. Uh, that Greek word is entomos, which means precious and valuable. He, he loves the servant. And because he values and loves the servant so much, he humbles himself to asking a Jew to heal the servant. And, and you have to see that, even, like, that he, so he gets this group of Jewish elders, uh, as we're going to see in a moment, to go and to talk to Jesus on his behalf. And I think that's beautiful to see uh, his, his, his sensitivity to the Jewish audience as well. Uh, if you look in the book of Matthew, you'll actually see that Matthew records it as if the centurion is talking to Jesus but Luke actually sheds light, and no, those words are coming directly from the centurion, but it's not actually, they're not contradictory. Uh, Luke just gives us the specifics there, so just in case you're reading the parallel version in Matthew. So let's get, let's get to verses 3 and 5 and dig in a little further. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So, you know, this is, that's an interesting way that they approach. So, so first, we got to look at the centurion and see his positivity. He actually never met Jesus. says he heard about Jesus. So here, this is amazing faith. He hears Jesus has raised some people from the dead, uh, raised a guy from the dead or whatever, raised people from the dead. He's, he's healing people. He's, he's healing blind people. He's doing all these amazing miracles. You know, this is our hope. That this guy is who we have hope in. He sees that. So you have to see his his amazing faith. But what do the Jewish elders say to Jesus? When you kind of really look here, they come and they and they plead the case of the centurion, which is well in and of itself. I mean, it's kind of them to 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 think of this centurion. We have to think eh, there's a little bit of a selfish motive too, because if they can bring back this healed you know, if we servant and then maybe get some more money from this centurion and they can build, you know, even a better synagogue, right? I mean, we have to think maybe something's going through their head. And the reason we may want to think about that is we don't want to just assume things, but we see their heart here. So what are they, what are they kind of saying here? They're saying, hey, this guy's a good guy and he deserves it, you know? So if we're good, we, we deserve it, right? We can see that they've got a, a really bad theology. And frankly, it's assuming and sinful the way that they are coming to Jesus. They have this reciprocal blessing. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, this guy's done this for us, so you need to do this for him. Almost a name it and claim it prosperity gospel is kind of what they're, what they're bringing to Jesus. Uh, and the, the, the centurion comes humbly. He won't even go to him, as we'll see in a moment. But yet the Jews, the Jewish elders come and are presuming. And they, they actually kind of come and say, God, you're in debt. You know, Jesus, you're, you're in debt. This guy's done all this stuff for you, but what have you done for him? 
You know, so, so you owe him to heal this servant, to, to write this record of debt that you owe him. And we're con- we'll contrast their theology and how they approach Jesus in the next point, uh, along with the centurion. But let's take a moment to try to apply this understanding in our own life. Do we ourselves, when we look at our own lives, how we approach God, do we presume upon the Lord? That's, that's kind of tough, isn't it? Uh, do we sometimes assume that the Lord should owe us or that he should bless us because we're faithful, because we're doing what we're supposed to do? Uh, should our church grow exponentially because we faithfully exposit the word of God? You know, do, do we feel like, oh, you know, God, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't we have this amazing building because we hold fast to the word of God? We look around at some churches in our world that are busting at the seams and growing tremendously, have tons of money and are doing all these, but they don't preach the word while we pre- while I preach in somewhere with a awning that looks like it's going to buckle at some point. You know, can, can, can we sometimes start to think, God, don't we deserve this? We're doing what we're supposed to do, but they're not. Why are they getting blessed and, and we're not? I, I know even as a pastor, I can struggle with that at times when I see people without a shepherd that's really preaching the word and, and they're just, all these people are, are going there. And yet this church with Brother Jim and different people that, that teach the word and ho- hopefully with what you hear from the pulpit that we are preaching the word of God. Yet, I, I will say, don't, I mean, you know, don't miss the fact that we do need to be generous givers. We need to be inviting people to church. I'm not saying that we don't need to do our part. Those are very, very true. But God does not promise a reciprocal blessing. He, he doesn't promise that, that if you do what's right, everything is going to be easy. He doesn't promise that, that, that if you preach the word, that evangelism is going to be simple. People are just going to fall down at the foot of the cross and be like, oh, yeah, that is, that is wonderful. He doesn't actually promise that at all. In, in essence, in John 16, Jesus, in fact, promises the opposite. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Good job, Miss Deb. I saw that. Uh, but, but he ends with, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do we presume upon him in our church? Do we presume upon him in our personal lives? Uh, should our personal finances grow because we are generous and we live simply? Uh, should our health remain good because we attend church and serve the Lord and read his word? right? Isn't that the gospel we preach against? But yet sometimes in our heads and in our experiences, we can start to cry out to God and say, why isn't this easier? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why is this so hard? If we're honest with ourselves, we can buy into that false gospel so quickly, so fast. God, why did I lose my job? I was giving sacrificially to the church. I was doing everything I could. Why why did I lose it? Uh, I, I was working with integrity and for your glory. Why did I get let go? That guy over there, he was cutting corners, doing all these things, and he still has a job. But me, I refused to do that, and now I'm without one. Or why is my child being disobedient? I, I'm consistent with discipline, and I'm, I'm trying to do this in a biblical way, but why don't they obey? This guy over here, he didn't pay attention to his kid, but his kid does everything right, it seems like, Right? Or why is my marriage so tough? Or, or why is my health not improving despite my best efforts? I take my medicines like I'm supposed to. I'm exercising, I'm dieting, but yet still everything goes wrong. Or why is it so hard to dot, 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 fill in the blank? If we're not careful, we can buy into that false teaching that God owes us. My friends, God does not owe us anything. 
Do we really believe that? God does not owe us anything. He's already given us the greatest gift imaginable, the gift of eternal life. What else can we ask for from God than that? Brothers and sisters, we we must understand there's going to be things we don't understand on this side of of eternity. There's going to be things that we just don't get. You know, I mean, the psalmist cries out how often, well, why do the wicked continue to increase? Uh, Why do the righteous seem to struggle? You know, we ask those, people ask those questions, why do good things happen to, or why do bad things happen to good people, or why do good things happen to bad people? Well, we're all bad people, uh, according to Scripture. But, but, but why, why do good things happen to worse people? You know, sometimes we're like, why is that happening? Why does God allow pain? I did an apologetics podcast on that a few weeks ago. I'd love you to share that with somebody that might be struggling with that question. Why does God allow pain? Why, is, why does cancer exist? And this past week, I was actually blessed to meet a lady who's not in our church uh, who is currently battling a life-threatening cancer. And she'd listened to the podcast, those two, and, and had gotten, gotten encouragement from it. And my friends, there, there are just so many things we can't grasp right now. We can't figure out why does cancer happen to a believer, to someone who's following hard. Uh, why, why is there suffering? 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us this, though. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Brothers and sisters, we, we see dimly. It's almost like we're wearing sunglasses in a dark room. We just can't see, but we can see enough light to know that Jesus Christ is ahead. Just keep walking. Let his light shine on your path. Continue to walk through that. And just trust him and know that he is faithful, and he will do what he says he will do. Next, we see that, that Jesus responds with grace to the lowly, to the lowly. This is verses 6 and 7. Let me read them again for us. And Jesus went with them when he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Luke's account highlights the centurion throughout this passage, but sometimes it's, it's hard to miss the, or it's easy to miss the grace of Jesus Christ in this. And how, how amazing is this? So I, I, I've, respond, I've started off every one of our points that Jesus responds with grace because that's missed a lot in this passage when we start to see the centurion and his great faith, and we miss the grace of Jesus Christ. Well, first off, this is a centurion who's a Gentile, right? And we see that Jesus came to the Jews first, right? And so Jesus comes to the Jews, so he's showing grace by even entertaining this idea, at number two, he has these Jewish elders that come with a heart that may or may not be in the right place. You know, maybe a little selfish. And then obviously their theology is just off. And so they're coming with this theology. He could, have, he could have just come up and said, you know what, you all are way off base. Who are you to ask me? I'm God made flesh. Who are you to come and ask me to do anything for a Gentile? And then who are you to come and tell me what I should do and that I owe this guy? You know, I mean, he could have said that. You all are off on your thing, went the other way. Could have lectured them a little bit and then, went, then just said no. But all it says is that he graciously, he, he went with them. How amazing is that, that grace that he has there? You and I receive mercy and grace when we don't deserve it as well. You know, we approach God when he saves us 99% of the time, when he saves someone, their theology is not real good. You know, all they know is that they believe in Jesus. Uh, all they know is that they've acknowledged that they're a sinner. And all they know is that, that they were told to repent and turn from their sins and turn to God. Uh, you know, so, so God saves those people even when they are not the best theologians. Even when they maybe don't really fully understand every single thing to go there. But yet he saves them anyway. How, how amazing is 
God. And so we need to show that same grace to others as well. Uh, sometimes whenever somebody starts coming to church or somebody, you start to get to know them, you realize maybe they're not exactly on theologically. Sometimes they say something that's just a little bit off and you scratch your head, you're like, where'd you get that verse? I haven't seen, you know, we, we need to, to be gracious to them too and, and gently rebuke and teach them. But we see Jesus, he just goes the other way or goes right with them. And he's also said that the old has gone and the new has come. So when he saved us, he took the old and he threw it away and he gave us a new life. So he did that all for us while we were still sinners. He died for us. So we need to realize the, the grace and mercy that he's shown to us. Well, getting back to our scripture, we see that first he sent these Jewish elders. These Jewish elders have went to Jesus, given them his, their, their idea and said, hey, this is what you need to do for this centurion because he's a good guy. Well, now, as they start to walk toward the centurion's house to go heal this servant, he sends some more guys. These are some of his buddies, some friends, to go meet Jesus. And they come, and they say what many people would not expect. You know, you think when these guys are coming, I'm sure Jesus and other people, like, well, the other people, Jesus obviously knew what was going to happen, but the other people would have been like, "Uh uh-oh, he must be doing really bad. Maybe he's already dead, and they're saying, just go the other way. But no, these guys come, and they say something just amazing. They're like, you know what? The centurion just sends this message I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. You know what? I, I don't want to presume upon you, Jesus. Just say it, and, and he'll be healed. I mean, what? Like, you know, we haven't seen that anywhere in the Scripture where somebody just says, don't worry about coming to my house. Don't worry about coming to my house to see my servant who's suffering. Just say it. And then he goes through a little dissertation there where, in a minute where he's going to say, I understand authority, and you are pretty much the, the son of God in a way. You may not understand it completely. But he says, he calls Jesus, what, what does he call him here? Saying to him, Lord. Lord. Do you know what the word Lord means? Master. Like that's a, that's a big thing for this Gentile centurion who's in charge of over, about 100 guys to call somebody else master. And not only that, to call a Jew master. I mean, the Jews were not really, the Jews didn't like the Romans, but the Romans also didn't like the Jews. So it, it, was, it was a mutual uh, dislike or disdain for one another. So how amazing is that? And he asked Jesus to heal from a distance, and he says, if you say the word, the servant's going to be healed. I mean, what an amazing, humble faith that is exerted here. The centurion firmly believes that Jesus has the power over life and death. We saw and hear that the servant's about to die. We saw in Matthew that he's paralyzed. He's laying there suffering. I mean, this is pretty bad. And it reminds me of the poor beggar we see in Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, uh, this is the, 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 the poor beggar tax collector that's kind of doing that. Um, he, he says, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful, to, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say about that guy, the tax collector, when he compares him to the Pharisee who was just before that? says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but to the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus honors and gives grace to the humble and lowly. We see that in James 4, 6 as well. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's just take a moment and contrast this theology from these Jewish elders who should have known better, should have known what the scripture says. They have the Proverbs, they have the law, they have that. And then this Gentile centurion who obviously is a Jewish sympathizer. We don't know if he's a full convert, where he's at that way. But so the theology of the Jewish elders, they think they're worthy. They think that they are deserving. Uh, They are presumptuous. They obviously have a weaker faith. And they think that God owes 
them and that God owns, uh, owes the centurion. But look at the, the Gentile centurion. We see that he says he's unworthy. He's not even worthy to have Jesus come into his house. He says, no, don't, don't even worry about coming. I, I'm not, I don't want to presume upon you. He's undeserving. He, he knows that he shouldn't even be heard, but yet he is gracious, gracious or thankful about the grace of God. He's not presumptuous. He has a strong faith, the strongest faith of all of Israel's. we're going to see here in a little bit, that he just says, Jesus, just, just speak the word. You just say it, and he'll be healed, and he doesn't think that God owes him anything. Uh, so just note the vast differences between these, these, these two. And I think as we see those vast chasms of differences of the theology of the Jewish elders and the theology of this Gentile centurion, it brings up a really important, another important question for us today. Which one of these are we most like? Uh, who, who do we relate to in our theology? Uh, the way that we approach God and his word, the way we approach God in prayer, is he the God that owes us something because we are great? Is he the God that because we did this, this, and we checked all these boxes and we've been faithful, well, he should give us financial blessings. He should do this. He should do that. He, should, he owes us, right? Or are we like the Gentile centurion who says, you don't owe me anything, God. You don't owe me anything, Jesus. I humbly lay myself at your feet to say, please do what I ask. Please answer my prayer. Uh, how, how do we approach God? Are we humble and lowly, like the centurion here, or are we presumptuous, assuming? Uh, God honors and gives grace to the humble, but the pride he opposes, right? I pray that we model our lives like the Gentile centurion who has a big faith in God, but a small view of himself, and that's how we need to, 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 to approach God. Finally, we see in our last point, Jesus responds with grace to the loyal. Jesus responds with grace to the loyal. Let's read verse 8 first here. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this centurion, as we've already mentioned, and as he was over 100 men, and then he had a tribunal leader uh, that, that was over him. There were six centurions under that, and the legion was 6,000 men and the, uh, the army under that. He, he understands authority, people under and over him. And so when he sees Jesus, he sees Jesus as a man of authority, right? So demons have responded to Jesus and got been cast out. Death itself has responded to Jesus. Blind people have responded to Jesus. He, he's shown that he has authority over things. And then he understands that he has the authority of God supporting him. He may not, uh, not have understood the Trinity as we do today. He may not have understood that Jesus was 100% God, 100% man. He may not have understood all that, but he did know that Jesus had, and he believed that Jesus had the supernatural power to do anything that he wanted to do that was in the will of the Father. And in this, he shows loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus. He let him know that he respected and trusted Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to this humble and faithful plea? Let's read verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. That's amazed. Uh, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. As I've already alluded to in the introduction, I love the word marveled here. Uh, the Greek word here is thavlazo, which me also means to amaze, to wonder, or to admire. And Jesus gives this man quite the astounding compliment. He says he's not found faith like that in all of Israel. How, how amazing is that? This Gentile of the Roman army is the one that has the most faith. And note the paradox of this man's faith. It's really interesting to see his approach here. 
So first off, he is bold enough to ask. You know, we need to be bold enough to ask our Heavenly Father. We, we need to ask him for things. But he is humble enough not to presume that he is owed anything from God. And, and may we approach God in that way. Uh, James 4, 2 through 3 actually teaches us this concept. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and, uh, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But you ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passion. So we see here that we need to have the boldness to ask. We don't have sometimes because we don't ask. There is a truth to that. We need to pray. We need to intercede for others. We need God has designed our lives. Even though he is sovereign, he's in complete control, he uses prayer. How that works, we don't even understand fully. How amazing is that, that God is so vast that we don't even understand how he is sovereignly in control, but yet he uses our prayers and the human responsibility side as well. But then he says, when you do ask, you, you ask it for yourself. It's selfish. It's, it's coming from an assuming, presumptuous heart. It's coming because you think that you deserve it. You did this, so God, you owe me. Or that guy did that, so God, you owe him. No, we, we boldly ask, but it's done in humility and selflessly, realizing that God doesn't owe us anything. Also note the, the extent of this man's faith in Christ. So we, we've already said he, he likely had never even met Jesus because it says he heard about him. But there, was plenty of, but there was plenty of evidence that Jesus was all-powerful that he heard about. He likely heard about the many miracles that Jesus had done thus far. And his faith was, on Jesus was actually based on facts. And this is a great teaching for our faith today. A lot of people talk about Christianity as having a blind faith. We don't have a blind faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Well, assurance isn't a guess. It's not just a, a blind faith and the conviction of things not seen. Uh, we, we see faith is not based on things that we see per se, but it's based on assurance. And our assurance comes from facts. It comes from the Word of God that tells us exactly who Jesus is. We see who God is. We see from the pages of Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see God acting time and time again, fulfilling promise, fulfilling promise, saving souls, saving souls. How amazing. Delivering people through amazing things. Not that we need history to attest, but, but even ancient artifacts, things we see, they just line up with the Word of God. We know that it is the true Word of God. And so our faith, although we can't see God, our faith is not a blind faith. We don't just toss it up in the wind. We don't do Pascal's wager, which is a, a garbage thing that says, oh, well, I'll go ahead and believe in Christ because at least I won't go to hell if there's not a Jesus and there's not a God well, I lived a good life. Like, that's not true. That's not good. We follow God because we know that he's real. We know that he's true. We know that he has done what he says he's done. We have saw him change the world. I mean, amazingly. What is, what is our calendar based on? Before they try to change it here recently, I refuse to do that, and I would urge you to refuse to do that too. It is B.C., which is before Christ, A.D., after he died, or in the year of the Lord, if you're looking at the Latin there. How amazing is that? Uh, the entire calendar hinges on Jesus Christ. Only a fool says that he never existed. Even an atheist can't deny that. Our faith is not based on a fairy tale. It's not based on anything. It is based on the fact that Jesus Christ lived on this earth, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead. No body was ever found. Our faith is based on fact. But I, I want to kind of get back to this. It's amazing in verse 9. What did Jesus not say? 
says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning, turning to the crowd, he followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What did he not say? Who did he not talk about in that statement? The servant. He, he, he doesn't talk about the servant at all. He doesn't say, yeah, I'll heal him. It's amazing. So he says that, and then he starts going the other direction. He doesn't follow and go back with them. How, how amazing is that, 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 that he just says, uh, affirms this man's faith and turns and goes the other direction? And we're not told until verse 10, which it says, and when those who had been sent returned to the house. So Jesus has just said, that guy's got some incredible faith. I'm amazed by that faith. He starts walking in the other direction. Doesn't say the servant's healed, everything's good, don't worry about it. Obviously, these guys see something, and they're like, all right. And, and they go their direction. They go, and we see here they found the servant what? Well. Man. I mean, Jesus, he actually didn't even say the servant was healed. Like, we don't even see that in Scripture, that Jesus said, God, I ask that you heal the servant. No. No, I mean, it's just, just incredible that Jesus is from a distance. He's just healed this guy that's about to die almost just resurrected from the dead. I mean, Matthew pretty much says he's about to, to go, and Luke finishes it off saying, yeah, he's, he's on the edge of death. He's about to go. And he just walks the other way. And the focus on this entire text uh, is usually not on this healing. It's usually on the centurion and his faith, which is, which is important. It is kind of the main idea of this. But sometimes, but it's almost mentioned as an afterthought. Uh, literally, these la- this last part of verse 10, they found the servant well. That's all that you really get about the healing. They found the servant well. I mean, that's just incredible to me that sometimes we just look over that, that Jesus just healed somebody from a distance. He's not even in the same proximity. We don't know if he's yards, miles. We don't know how far he is away. I mean, I would think probably a decent bit uh, because these guys had to be sent out. So, I mean, that's just just incredible to me. And so what we've seen in this scripture, if we've seen Jesus's humanity, he was amazed. He marveled. You know, how, how, how cool is that? So we see the emotion of Jesus. But then we also just saw his deity right in front of your face. The servant is well. He's healed from a distance. And, and Colossians 1.19 tells us this, For in him, meaning Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We preached on Colossians a while ago now. All of the fullness of God. Jesus is 100% God, and he's 100% man. Uh, he, he's, he's not part God. He's not part of God. He is fully God or truly God and fully man or truly man. And we've seen both of these played out in this account. He has shown his humanity and being amazed and he's shown his deity in this miraculous healing. And this is a, a quite an account. I can't think, or I can't help but think that the centurion felt much like the psalmist in Psalm 30 verse 2. Oh Lord my God, I cried to you for help and you have healed me. His cry had been heard. His humble and faithful plea to the Messiah was answered. He wasn't the one that needed healing, but his heart was healed when he saw the servant healed. And how he must have rejoiced when he saw that the Messiah answered his his plea. Brothers and sisters, as we come to a close, our, our Savior is ready to heal from a distance today as well. I, I'm not speaking of physical healing, which does happen at times. You know, praise God for that. But I, I'm speaking of spiritual healing. Speaking of being born again to eternal life. By placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins, you will experience healing like no other. 
your old heart will be cast away. Your new heart will be given to you, and you will be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come, as we said before. And the reason you can experience that healing from a distance is because God is never truly distant. He is always right there. Just like Jesus, as he heals the servant from a distance, we see that played out in, in this, the wonderful theology of the song, God Made Low, which we sang during the Christmas season by Sovereign Grace. As he sleeps upon the hay, this is Jesus in the, in the manger, he holds the moon and stars in place. Though born an infant, he remains the sovereign God of endless days. He can save you from a distance because he is transcendent, meaning he is everywhere at once, every time at once. He's timeless. How amazing is that? Sometimes we feel like God is far off and that there's this huge distance. But watch Jesus, even as he is in the flesh on earth, he heals a person because he's transcendent. He's not limited by time and space. His deity continues to remain. Even as he lays in a manger, he holds gravity the way it's supposed to be. He, he keeps the moon from colliding into the earth. He, he keeps the solar system going the way it's supposed to go. He, he keeps asteroids from destroying us all on earth. He holds us down on the earth with gravity, even as he cries in a manger. How amazing is our God. He is always right there, and he, he is ready to forgive you. That baby in a manger grew up, as we know, into, into a man. And that man died on the cross for our sins. He was crucified, and three days later, he rose from the dead. And now he offers eternal life to anyone who would put their faith and trust in him and repent or turn away from their sins. There is nothing better than that. Uh, for us who are saved already, I pray that we see this faith of the centurion, that we realize that God is not our genie, that we do not presume upon the Lord to do what we ask now, may we ask boldly, knowing that we can come with confidence to the throne of grace, as we see in the book of Hebrews, but not presumptuously. God doesn't owe us anything. He's already given us the greatest cost, the greatest gift we could ever ask for. May we come to God humbly and with great faith because we know that Jesus responds with grace to those who are humble and lowly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here that does not know you as their Lord and Savior or is not sure or needs to talk it out a little bit, I would love to talk to them after this service and let them know what it means to be a disciple and follower of Christ. It's so easy that a child can do it, but it's so hard because we have to die to ourselves. We have to give up our will and say, not my will, but your will be done. And that is the hardest part of salvation. And that's why it's so hard as we get to be adults to, to do that. Because as a child, you don't really get to do your will all the time, right? You have to answer to authorities and things like that. And as an adult, you do have some authorities, but not near as many. And so you start to get set in your ways. You start to do what you want to do, and you don't want to answer to someone else. And so when God offers this free gift of eternal life, and he says the only cost is dying to yourself, is just giving, giving your life over to Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty. He paid everything else. But your will needs to die because it's sinful. And we want to hold on to that. We like to do things the way we like to do things. We, we want to do what we want to do and not what someone else wants us to do. Pride, the hubris is the Greek word there. It, it just wells up in us and it prevents us from fully offering our life to Christ. So God, I pray if that's an issue right now, that you break that. I, I pray that you break the pride of any heart that refuses to fully submit to you today and that they see just how beautiful and great that you are and how kind that you are, and that that melts that pride away, and they're able to fully give their life to you, Lord. 
If that's you and, and you're here sitting here and you realize, yes, I need that pride melted away. I need my heart of stone broken. I need a new heart of flesh given to me. I, I pray that you make that today. Today is the day of salvation for you. I pray that you make that decision right now, that you ask Jesus to, to heal your broken heart, to give you a new one, that, that you tell Jesus that, that you want to repent of your sin with his power. You, you'll be able to turn from, from whatever sinfulness that you have, and you ask him to, to help you to follow him all the way. He's not a God that just takes a halfway uh, handover. He, he wants all of it. He doesn't, he's not going to be your co-pilot. He will drive the car if he's there. And so, God, may we truly make sure we've submitted. Uh, for us who, uh, who are believers, may you help us to walk in faith. May you increase our faith. Help us to have faith like this centurion. God, we love you. We praise you. And we thank you. Help us have a uh, wonderful day glorifying you. And amen.